Hi, welcome back everyone to the Beyond Lived Experience podcast. We have a guest today for the first time. Um, Anne, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure, I'm Anne Casper. I'm currently with the Global Mental Health Peer Network. And I think I'm here today to talk about my many years in the peer movements and in Oregon and nationally and globally. And so we're going to talk a little about history, right? Yes. Um, we do like to start with an icebreaker question, which oh. unfortunately I did not prepare today. Do you have one, Andrew, or I can just make one up? Um, we could talk about places we visited, like our favorite place favorite place maybe yeah and you're in one of your favorite places right now <laughs> yes I am one of my favorite places it's true it's hard to pick one favorite place um, because for me I travel a lot in different ages so right now I'm in Japan and I do absolutely love it I was a teacher here 30 years ago and so I'm going to go back and visit my friends uh, from that area tomorrow go see them and Japan for me is a place that really brings me back to who I am. It seems uh, very quiet, a lot quieter than the United States, uh, a lot more orderly, and um, just a lot of kindness. And also what I like here is that they work from community. It means that everyone's trying to help each other be their best. And it's different than individual competition that we see in the United States. So it's always a good reset to come here. How about you, Nabel? What's your favorite? I mean, what's coming to mind right now is Victoria, Canada, and, you know, there's so much, like, touristy stuff there, but I think, like, when I was last there, it's just, like, there is a side of me that does like to indulge in, like, it's, I like going to afternoon tea and, like, doing little things like that and kind of, like, I guess it's kind of pampering. Um, and, um, Victoria is like in a, I forget what it's called, but like basically where it's placed, like the weather there is like perfect, you know, most months out of the year. And it will like not get, you know, below a certain, like, temperature or above a certain temperature it just kind of stays in this nice like 60s to 70s range like almost all year and so like whenever I go there the weather's fantastic which I really like um it's difficult in you know the Portland area when it's like rainy or sometimes it's like too sunny and too hot it's like it's just nice to have it be kind of like the same sort of weather all the time, like consistency. <laughs> what about you, Andrew? <laughs> I haven't been to too many places, but um, Mexico and uh, Oaxaca was a beautiful place. Like I love the culture there. Um, when I went with my dad, they were having a festival and they had lots of like um, paper liner flag things like strung up everywhere from rooftop to rooftop just all over and just uh, all kinds of like um, stalls and booths out with food and drinks and stuff and um, we went to San Jose del Pacifico which was in the mountains 
and that was like a small village and that was um to me i like that even more just because it was so like peaceful and just um it had people from all around the world there but it was still like a small place just like beautiful trees everywhere like rich soil that you just pick up the soil and you see it like sparkle and it has like deep reds and oranges uh you can pick passion fruit from the trees just all around there it's just uh, it definitely filled my cup being there nice um so i figure like we might as well just jump into the topic um so Anne, like how are you uh personally involved in the consumer survivor expatient movement or movements <laughs> <laughs> How am I personally involved? Boy, that's that's a long one. Um, I think I really got more involved in 2004 after I'd been civilly committed. And um, also I had been uh, an English and Second Language instructor at universities and community colleges. And so for about 20 years I wasn't allowed to purchase any insurance because I had a mental diagnosis. And I was uh, without any kind of health, dental, mental health insurance for so long. Um, I ended up getting in the, getting civilly uh, committed. And as I came out of it, they put me on um, the, the health plan, which is called the Oregon Health Plan, which we had to get at by being in a lottery at that time, unless you'd been committed. <laughs> and I did win the lottery sometimes. Um, and so I was at Cascadia Behavioral Healthcare getting services and I met other peers there and I met other leaders there. Uh, Donita Diamata was working there. Um, and through her, we also met Becky Child and Becky just took about five of us down to Salem to testify. We had no clue what was going on. All we <laughs> know is we had lunch in the van and we, we go in front of the testifying people. I'm like, do I want to say anything? Do I want to put my name out there? Cause I've been a teacher. Will this affect me in the future if I testify then? Uh, but I did testify, and uh, we still didn't actually understand what was all going on. But uh, then I got involved. Um, well, at Cascadia, I found out, because I was on Medicaid, that they were sending me bills as well as Medicaid bills. So they're double charging. So basically uh... Medicaid fraud. And I found out about that because they were sending me to uh, the debt collectors. Um, and not only me, but hundreds of people in Portland. And because also at that time I had started volunteering at NAMI, there was no peer organizations to volunteer with and I was not doing well at that time and I wanted to be outside of my house. So um, I was volunteering at NAMI answering phones and, and parents were telling me too that they were paying for these Cascadia things um, and for these bills. So I happened to know the chair of Multnomah County at the time, Diane Lynn, because I had taken care of her children in a, a after-skilled daycare um, program through the city years ago. I went to Diane and said, look, I'm being doubly charged. I'm being charged, Medicaid's being charged. I don't want to pay. Um, so that was my first um, step into really advocating for us I got that stopped. I got all that Medicaid fraud stopped at that time. And uh, yeah, that's how I got started. So when, so like, um, just for timeline wise, like around mm -hmm. like what, 
year or like decade are we talking about when oh, sure, with these events that you're referring that to? That was 2004, and yeah, and um, also so Nabil, I'm just checking with you because I can't see your face. Did your uh, Wi-Fi go out? Just to check. Oh, I mean, I can still see everyone. Okay, good. Yeah, I just can't checking. see you either. Um, sometimes if you have a slow internet connection, it'll, like, turn off other people's video <laughs> to oh, okay. maintain good, good to a know. better connection just... on your end. Yeah. Got it. I just said that you see us so, okay, good. Um, you can take out this part. So there you are. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so in, um, so in two, I'll start again. So in 2000, it was in 2004 that I came to know what was the peer movement at that time. Um, as I understand the history, some of it started actually around 1969 in Portland, Oregon, when three people or a group of people started what's called the Insane Liberation Front. And that was Dorothy Werner, Tom Whittock, and Howie the Harp. Now, Howie had come from New York to spend some time in Oregon, and he went back to New York and started big programs there. Um, Dorothy and Tom lived in Portland, and I actually, I, I used to see Tom throughout the years, and I think he's still alive in Portland. Um, and it might be really interesting to get some information from him, and he would show up at meetings, um, yeah, up until a couple of years ago. And I remember seeing a film which um, Howie the Harp said, Dorothy never knew what her she had started basically what what her dream has had turned into. Um, she apparently left the moment movement, uh, and she started with making groups of people in Portland to talk about it. They had been in psychiatric hospitals. They were um, protesting against that. They're saying it's doesn't work. We don't like psychiatry. They were, um, and so let's get together and help each other out. And there were also at the same time, around that time, in different places, California, in the East Coast, um, people coming out and making newsletters, and they started to talk with each other. So there's a lot of movement around that time. And I didn't get into 2004, um, so in Oregon. Wow. I mean, there's so much, like, history that, like... I don't know, like I was surprised to hear about some of the things that you were saying and, um, you know, I feel like we don't always do a good job of like keeping our peer history, you know, written down somewhere or like passing on the knowledge. Um, so yeah, I'm really grateful to like have you, you know, talking with us today because I think, um, this is something that, like, a lot of folks who are working as peers today just don't know about because they they didn't experience it. I have to um, say, honestly, we didn't have time to write things down. We were just trying to survive. There were no jobs, basically. You were not paid yeah. for this. We, we all, we made, we created what was now jobs. And so all of us, we were doing this for free, basically. Um, this was our survival. This is for us to, to actually move on. Yeah, and that totally makes sense. Um, I mean, how... I have a question. Uh, 
Sorry. No, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah. What kept you going with that? Uh, so, you said it, it was your survival. Um, could you um, expand more on that? Like, um, what it felt like to be in that ex experience of like, okay, I'm doing this for free. We're working for our rights. Like, what was the feeling of being in the middle of that? Hmm. But see, it wasn't like working for free. It was the right thing to do because no one else was saying what we were saying. And through our experiences, we knew something was not working. I had, I'm not going to go into the, some of the horrible things that have happened to me throughout the years in the psychiatric system because I don't think it's necessary to go back to those horrors. But we said no. We said there's a better way. Um, and I had been actually an advocate for refugees and immigrants um, starting in 1983. So I had done advocacy for years in that level. I'd also done advocacy, I helped bring in 900 refugees to Oregon in the 1990s and been working with Kurdish people. So I've been working with other movements. Um, so for me it was natural to, to do that and use those skills I'd learned from other movements in this one as well. Um, I, I think a lot of the, and I had honestly a lot of professional experience, meaning that I, I worked and I got my masters and I taught English as a language, I worked import-export, I travel, I've had exchange students live in my house, and so I had a lot of, and I also worked in offices, so I had that like traditional work experience before I even stepped into this. And I think what's happening now with a lot of people is that they don't have that traditional work experience. They maybe started peer support specialists, and um, there's something in getting trained by working in different systems. I've worked with so many different systems that um, that's it. And I guess one thing is about hope, never losing hope. And I like to live off ideals. <laughs> that's just who I am. And um, so maybe as we're going here, and, and you as younger or newer people, you're a little younger than me, but newer people in the movement, can you talk about maybe some of the principles and ideals that bring you to this? I mean, I feel like it's what you said, like, it's the right thing to do. Um, because for me, when I came into peer support, I, I was like, oh, this is just gonna be like a stepping stone right now. I'm gonna go and get my graduate degree and whatever. And um, then I got into it and I was like, oh, this is wrong the way that like peer staff are treated. Like, I gotta do something. I gotta stay here and like make things better. <laughs> um, so that's what really like, called me to it is like this isn't right like I was on a team where um, the way that they spoke about the people receiving services was horrible and I was like this isn't okay like we this is why we need peers and more of them not I'm half-time peer working an opposite schedule with another half-time peer so I never see them. Um, so yeah, I mean, it like opened my eyes to a different world and 
wanting better services because I had like some pretty crappy experiences with mental health services and like I would have wanted a peer. How about you, Andrew? What, what keeps you in this? Definitely some, some similar things to what you both said. Um, I think part of, part of it for me too was I've, I've always been drawn to helping people heal. I'll just say that because I know that doesn't fully apply to peer support, but um, I've always felt called to the healing arts and wanting to um, both heal myself and walk other people through that process too, like in a holistic way. I never fully bought into this idea that um, some of these issues, these problems are just biological or in our brain, like it, that never hit for me. Like I've always felt like there's more to it than that. There's the mind, body, and spirit. There's um, society, there's family. It's like, it's more complicated than that. So um, yeah, I've just always, I've always felt drawn to helping people navigate that and then peer support came like very unexpectedly for me when I just basically asked um I could say the universe I just asked the universe like I want to do something that's just this is going to sound so terrible I, I asked the universe I want to do something as close as possible to being a counselor without having to get the degree I hate saying that but that's how I said it um, and then it, it was like, I think a week later that my friend told me about peer support. And then, um, also during this whole thing, I was going through my own mental health. Well, I'd just gone through my own mental health crisis and, um, going through the training helped me to, um, just reevaluate a lot of things like relationships with my friends and just a lot of things. And, um, um, I'm running on, but anyways, um, I think the biggest thing for me was, um, it wasn't something I was expecting to get into. It just kind of just showed up. And I think I'm still processing exactly why it showed up for me, but I know a big part of it is, um, I saw the wrongs too in the in the field. I saw um, just how messed up it is, and it really sickened me on a deep visceral level that this kind of stuff is continuing to go on um, for some of the most vulnerable people. And to me, that just feels disgusting. And it was very hard for me to just watch by, watch and let that happen without trying to do anything about it. So what I'm hearing in a way, if it's okay if I comment in here, is, is social justice. It's it's a, for the justice for everybody to discover themselves. Um, that's what I'm hearing part, partly from both of you and also in your own discovery as you're helping people liberate and find themselves and find their healing. It's also 
healing for you too. I mean, I can say for myself, it's healing for me. And mm -hmm. I, I guess too, I had been in other political movements where I saw where there was an absolute no, and I was able to change that no to a yes. So mm -hmm. by having that success in other places before, I knew that it was possible here to change things. And I've been able to change what has been no and impossible to, to be different. And I had one person ask me in a Multnomah County um, Advisory Council meeting 15 years ago, oh, how can you smile at these meetings? How can you do this? How can you be, you know, bring hope? And it's because I had had success before. And I know as consciousness rises in a way, it's, it's, it, people get more aware of what works and having choices and that being in boxes doesn't work for everybody. Um, as, as that healing happens not only at the individual level, family level, but community level. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think like some of the work that I've done as a peer support trainer, like that has an impact on communities and like they're healing even if the folks taking that training, there aren't, they aren't even using it to like work as a peer. They're, I've had people come to those trainings who are like, I'm part of a mom's group or I'm a teacher. <laughs> um, and I think that's really cool, like that those values don't just apply to a certain job. <laughs> they can be applied to humans. I think the va the main value for me, a lot of it working with it, is being non-hierarchical. That's what we talk about yeah. that, or mutual, accepting people as we are. And a lot, if you look at the recent history, school systems, government systems, things like that, is more hierarchical. So actually, the peer way of thinking is coming against these old systems and saying... Well, that's, that's really interesting, too, because I think, at least in my experience, being not only a peer, but also in a management position, um, it's almost like sometimes people want you to be hierarchical with them. And when I'm coming at it from a non-hierarchical way, people are like suspicious or something or not sure what to do with that. And I've actually, it, it feels icky, but there have been times where I'm like, it's like I kind of, have done things or said things in a way that is more hierarchical because I, I'm not getting a response trying to do it in a different way. <laughs> so I think, I don't know. It's There's levels of understanding. And I just wanted to add into it. It's so interesting to hear about you too, about your training, because when I started, there was no training, right? right. We had to make, we made it all up. Yeah. <laughs> And there's been a lot of wonderful people to help build what has been here. Uh, I've noticed, it, just I did want to mention, I've noticed some of the, the peer values that we worked on, the, the movement that I was attracted to was really the movement that started out of the hospital system saying, no, this is not going to work. Because it was my own experience being in and out of hospital systems, including in Japan. And um, peer support's been happening I, I mean, in my own experience, since 1987, being in hospitals, on that individual kind of informal level. I mean, we help each other out to survive in these systems, which are really, really difficult to survive in. Um, even in Japan, I remember one man, he gave me his one only book in English. 
And I still have it to this day because that was his way of helping me get through that time. Um, Takes many forms, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to ask um, and, and to bring up some of the. So again, when I started, there was no training. We had to work on that. Um, one person I did want to bring up in Oregon who really helped out a lot was Sean Clark. And those of us peers could not make what we did exactly without our allies in the government roles, without our allies in different places. And there's always been in Oregon strong allies who also see different ways of healing, who also go, I mean, and um, yeah, so, and, and it's interesting because they're working in these linear rigid systems and helping us to create something new. And, and just to let you know, in Oregon, the statues to be written, at, well, years ago, 2004, five, six, Scott Snedeker, who was a wonderful peer here. Um, he made his own job twice, from first in Multnomah County and then at the Oregon State Hospital. Um, he and I were at the workforce tables uh, when they're dreaming up what will the mental health workforce look like in years and years and years to come. And we were just talking about peers and peer support. And we didn't, I don't even use the term peer support. <laughs> but having peers working in systems and um, Scott had made his own jobs. He was able to do that at the Oregon State Hospital and there was Oregon State Hospital in Portland and I went to go volunteer with him. Um, and I just want to mention two other, it's interesting because Oregon brings in actually some of the healers. So Will Hall, I don't know if you've heard about Will Hall, mm -hmm. yep. came to Oregon too and started Portland Hearing Voices. And we started with four people then and it grew larger and it grew smaller. Now it's growing larger again. Um, but Portland and Oregon seems to be a hub of people to be in just to do these things. Um, I did want to bring up the values, like some of the values what, what, what are some words of peer values that you, you work with, like mutuality? Or... I, yeah, I mean, part of it is intentional peer support, like connection, exploring worldview, having mutuality in relationships and moving towards. And then I also really like um, SAMHSA's core competencies for peer workers that has the peer values of um, being a uh, person-centered, trauma-informed, that peer support is voluntary. Um, uh, I'm forgetting a couple of them. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, those are the big ones for me. It helps to have some kind of structure. And I know the, the SAMHSA guidelines didn't come out till like 2018 or something like that. <laughs> anything to yeah, add on that Andrew? We were working for more from liberation. I would say more from liberation. Like let's, let's find our own way without structure. Structure doesn't yeah. though. Drew, how about you? Yeah. I, I, I love, I love both of them. Cause I think we need both yin and yang of that. Um, for me, I feel, I feel I, I came into it with a lot of the values that I got from other places. So like the idea that like there's an inner healer or an inner authority that um, if we just tune into our deeper selves, our deeper nature, and just ask the question, like we have the answers within ourselves. I heard that from other sources and um, it really aligned with IPS, how IPS talks about like 
the goal is really to help people find their own answers. It's not to tell them what to do. It's not to dictate. And um, so I think that value is definitely um, huge for me, and it's what I try to foster, encourage. Um, also, community. I think peer support, in a lot of ways, is a. Um, I think peer support tries to build community, and when it's a, in a professional context, I think it's kind of like a, a stand-in for community when people don't have it, and in some cases can be a bridge to that. Um, but I feel like the heart of peer support is to somehow build and create community for people who feel out of place in this world, who feel like there's, um, they're not understood by society, that they're, they're cast aside and judged and shamed for being different. They're pathologized for having big emotions, big feelings, different thoughts, different experiences of reality. Um, I think peer support tries to point the way towards like a community where that's accepted and that's explored, it's not shunned. Yeah, I think normalization is a huge part of it, just like acceptance. What does normalization mean? Because we like to say normal is only a setting on a washing yeah. machine. What I mean by that is like that um, rather than being like othering, where it's like, oh, this person, you know, they have certain experiences and, you know, they need to just be over here, you know, in the hospital or in a room with a therapist or whatever, that there is actually openness and that it, it's a normal part of our society for people to share about these struggles and not be treated differently. Um, I did want to bring up what I heard from it's okay, Andrew, and uh, talk about choice and self-efficacy. Adrian Fries was a woman in Oregon who was working in uh, developmental disabilities. I don't know the right words to use right now because they've changed the terms, but they have this thing called overages where the person themselves can choose what they want their money to be used for. So Adrian and a couple other people who were working in development, it was called DD at the time, development disabilities. Uh, it's called mm -hmm. something else now. Um, and- Intellectual uh, disabilities. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I don't know what the ID- well, People still use the term DD still. So yeah, sorry. I've heard that still used. <laughs> I have to be really careful about terms these days. Um, the things keep changing. Uh, but she started a brokerage and it was called, um, self uh see the boy now i've lost the word anyway uh, empowerment initiatives and through that brokerage it means that they got money from Multnomah county uh for let's say at that time it was um i believe two thousand dollars a year and the person there through what's now called self-directed services um, got to choose what's what's done for the with the money and actually I got one of those scholarships in 2004 I just gotten out of the hospital of being locked up in this horrible hospital of being silly committed and the whole that whole trial thing and I was at Cascadia waiting for my first appointment which you have to go to the appointment after being committed Adrian's sitting there waiting for her appointment with the manager and we start talking and that's how I found out about that program, I ended up working with Empowerment Initiatives. It turned out to be the peer-run organization that made it to about, I think, $2 million. And uh, 
they had an office in Southeast Portland, and they started doing the first peer services, really, is in the Portland area, also Clackamas County. And they went out, um, and the, so there's a place called Villabois, and they were hired to work in Villabois, which is built on grounds that used to be old hospital grounds. There um, are uh, residences there with people with mental health issues who live together in apartments. And those, the apartment that they worked at called Renaissance Court was getting phone calls to the police, to the fire, like almost every day a couple of times because they were having conflicts. The residents were having conflicts with each other. And Paramanishas went in and said, look, if we have an office here, we sell these conflicts in the peer way. And so mm -hmm. they had an, one of the apartments turned into an office. They had coffee, they did classes, they did peer support. Um, I actually worked there for three years, so that's why I know it very intimately as well. And guess what? Those calls went from daily to almost none. So it saved the system lots of money and people got peer support. Wow. And it, it, and after that, too, uh, I know that they made another one of the apartments in that complex um, a warm line area. So people who lived in the apartments could actually go work on the warm line um, in their residences. Wow. Wow. Isn't that cool? Um, and what this what is, happened to it? Uh, well, okay, what happened to Empower Initiatives, what happened to other... I, would, I want to also give one more shout-out to a project I really loved which was through Cascadia Behavioral Healthcare. A bunch of us were clients there, for lack of better words. You know, we were going to behavior and we, we hated it. And there was just a lot of animosity. And we, we actually protested in the parking lot sometimes. Uh, we had huge protests. Yeah, no, I'm not kidding. We had to, to get our rights, to get just basic care. Uh, even one time, um, I remember it, it used to, to get your medication, you had to be the first to show up. If you didn't show up, you didn't get a medication appointment for another couple months. It was crazy. Um, so anyway, at the Cascadia people, we got together, the art people were doing the art classes and we made our own art studio. So in Portland, Southeast Portland near Reed College, we had a peer run art studio. And it was called In Our Mind's Eye. It was wonderful. And then we have so many wonderful artists in, in Oregon and Portland who are peers. They ran the whole thing. So, but what happened to in our mind's eye? What happened to empower initiatives? Unfortunately, the um, the finances were not handled well, and and so I've seen other peer initiatives in Oregon fail because they didn't have the business background. They worked from heart and soul and knew what to do with people, like the bookkeeping, the record keeping, Multnomah County, with Empower Initiatives, it happened that they didn't like the record keeping. Multnomah County came in and um, took it and gave it to a place called Luke Dorf, which has a different new narrative now. So they took that. So it, what started as Pure Run got taken over. Um, I did want to also talk to you, what I heard from Nabel also about not being treated well. I have personally not been treated well for years in rooms. And I don't think people of this generation understand what it was for us to be in those places where we really were not welcomed at all, zero. And it's been through those of us who have made relationships with power people, with, with managers, with people in government, that now any peer can step into a room and like they wanna be listened to. I don't know if you can imagine um, being in a room where they don't want you at all. 
Mm -hmm. they don't want to hear what you want to say. I think it's it's different. Um, you know, it's not a, a dichotomy, but you know, I've had experiences of like, you know, maybe I'm in there, but people don't want to listen to anything no. I have to say, or the response is like silence. So, um, yeah, it kind of depends on the context, I think, but. Um, so what I, I had to do is to be in places where I was not accepted whatsoever and be quiet and be insulted. And it made me think, um, about one of your comments a couple of weeks ago, just made me think like how much trauma I've put myself into mm. for the sake of these values. What have I done to myself in a way? Um, because in the past, it, it really, we really were not accepted at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not the same, but I've been asking myself the same question. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of that is isolation. I, I mean, I actually like had a conversation with a coworker earlier today and it turned into peer support. I wasn't even expecting it with our, you know, quality assurance person <laughs> of all people. Um, but we started talking and it was like, wow, you know, we've both just been like alone in our experiences, even though what we were speaking to was kind of different. Um, her stuff was more physical health. Um, and, um, you know, my pieces are more mental health, but there was so much overlap in that conversation. I'm like, was there really a difference? And I think, like, it is cool that things are at a stage where, like, I at least feel like I can have those conversations with my coworkers because I think definitely when I started in the field, it was just, like, <sighs> it, it was, like, yeah, you know, we'll let you talk, but we're not going to actually do anything. So that's almost worse to be like vulnerable and just nothing's done <laughs> or it's different. I guess there's no need to compare, but no, there's no comparison. Yeah. But if, if uh, those of us who didn't sit in these rooms and just make our way in there, I have just snuck into places. I've gotten used my, I do, I use my political savvy to get to know, I mean, and, and actually people invite me places too. Um, but without having that first person there, things wouldn't have changed at all. So I think that's one reason why I did it because I knew I could get into places and have, and, but it is hard and it's, um, yeah. I did a lot of exercise. I did a lot of screaming. I did a lot of crying. Uh, I have a lot of um, diaries of like, even working with the police. They asked me three times after James Chassie was killed to be on their commission, which changed things for the police. And that was in 2006. Um, and that is the film Alien Boy talks about the whole thing. But I was invited by the mayor to be at those tables and no one else was allowed to be there as a peer. And I remember just being furious at the, the police across the table from me because I mean, it's on film how, what happened to him, literally, physically, why he's dead. And um, I was furious at them. They were treating me. I was the only person at that table allowed to speak really, really terribly the whole time. Um, the leadership, the whole thing. Um, I knew it was a very special privilege to be there. So I did my best. And throughout the years, 
that anger and just being at the table continuously, I was also on the local public safety commission at uh, Multnomah County for years. Um, one of my mentors, the peer mentors, just kind of dumped me there because no one else wanted to do it. Um, just by being there for years and getting to know people, we started making relationships. And so the anger shifted to relationships, shifted to getting to know each other, shifted to my attitude changing towards police and their attitude changing towards peers. And so I, and I just wanted to, I just, one of the most beautiful things happened a couple years ago when I was sitting at the, and I snuck on this table again at the Portland Street Response Planning table at City Hall. The police got me on there because no other peers were there allowed to be there. No one with mental health issues was allowed to be speaking about this whole program made for mental health people like us. And I watched and sat back and watched the police speak up for us. They were the only one at the whole table to speak for us in Portland because a couple of us, Gary Schoenlander and I and other people have made such good relations that the people we've worked with, the police people we've worked with, change their minds and they see the value of having peers everywhere. The police, Portland police were asking at that table, where are the peers? Why aren't the peers here? Like in the same, literally. Wow. So it's, it's like, even going back to IPS, it's a relationship. And so my anger transformed. Their anger transformed. And I was at a meeting a couple years ago on this other thing from Multnomah County, and I had mentioned to the police person there at the table, and we were on the table, like, you know how they treated me, literally, you know, and it was just really hard to be there and, and to be insulted and things like that. And, and she turned around and apologized to me really sincerely. I thought, wow, this is just so beautiful. Um, so it, it's learning to grow as a human. And, and the police now, they do everything they can with peers by having peers around when they plan things. They really do. I know that in Portland. Um, it's, it's about that relationship. And, uh, and seeing I mean, the vision beyond, because if I hadn't been able to see that, that beyond, like there's a point where we could actually start to work together, if I couldn't hold that vision, what was I doing at those tables besides right. meaning? Right, yeah, I mean, I think like, that really speaks to like experiences I'm having now of like, yeah, needing to build those relationships with um, allies. <laughs> or I think everybody's. I think we don't really have enemies. We just have people who don't understand yeah. what may work for others. I think it's just a matter of understanding, and and some people will never maybe understand that there's different ways to heal. And that's okay, as long as we have safe spaces. Yeah, and I think that's why I lean on like more concrete concepts for values rather than like more nebulous concepts because I've spent so much time trying to help others understand that some folks like having it laid out in black and white like that of like, here are the values on a silver platter Rather than if I say liberation, people are like, huh, what, you know, what does that mean? Because <laughs> they had never been locked up themselves. They hadn't, they hadn't personally been through those experiences. So why would they understand it? Right. There's yeah. no reason. Yeah. Yeah. So, so good luck with that. Good luck with helping people understand. Um, yeah. I think, I think choice is a big thing for the, for any of us peer movements, wherever we are. East Coast, West Coast is actually very different. It's very interesting to be on the East Coast. And I was at a 
uh, conference last year and they go back and talk about the history and they had like 20 people up on stage that were saying thank you to and in Oregon <laughs> I don't know it's like yeah. down it's the strangest thing but in some places actually they do revere what's history there there's in our, um, on our own is a good book to read to start with um, there and more things are coming out and more videos are coming out I know um, I'll put some of my old videos also on back on YouTube I had done 20 interviews starting in 2004 2005 on cable access TV and in fact the first uh, office of I don't know what they call it now at the state level for consumers they keep changing the name there oh. uh, we, we actually fought to get that office in there um, one one quick story too so there was um, uh, an administrator for the state of Oregon his name is Bob and I can't think of his last name right now but that's okay Bob um, he, he got this idea about bringing peers down to Salem once a month to talk and what's going on. Uh, so we actually weren't paid. We just kind of just, I, I took people out of the hospital or whoever I knew and, and, and support groups and my old cars and drive down to Salem once a month. And it was an open meeting. It was really great. And after a while, um, this guy Bob had, it was not, I want to mention too, it was not only Bob, but the people who worked with him, his staff helped bring this in. You have administrators, but I know that his staff really helped get this going and kept it going for years, which has turned into now the Oregon Consumer Advisory Council. Um, but it started off just going down there and talking about what's going on and it helped him understand what's going on in different parts of Oregon. Um, and we weren't paid to be there. We're just going down there doing our stuff. Later on, uh, he had uh, a man named Mike Libachuk or Michael Libachuk kind of take the reins and Michael is very good at getting the groups to work together and listen to each other and Michael went on to work for the state of Oregon um, there's also a few people who went on to, to work in state places and we also worked and got peers to work in the Oregon State Hospital Scott Snedeker was a big part of that so now we actually have a team of peers that work in the Oregon State Hospital really good salaries I did want to mention for Multnomah County um, so I talked to you about how I found uh, the Medicaid fraud and, and then after that the quality assurance woman, the manager came to me and said, Ann, would you volunteer? Would you be in our offices? I'm like what? Okay. So I just fought with you. I got you to stop doing something illegal and now you want me to be in your offices. Okay. <laughs> so I was there for six years. Um, and at some point of the six years doing quality assurance and also vocabulary wasn't very nice about us. So I was on these cubicles when I heard something that wasn't really nice to us or equal or peer stuff. I just go around the cubicle. You know, you could use different words for that. <laughs> and <laughs> set that example. And I put SAMHSA posters all over the walls and, and just trying to, to set. They were scared to have a peer there. Um, they had had peers like 10 years before that they got they were gone and they were simply scared to have a peer on the fifth floor of the Mono County um, Mental Health and Addictions office and I was that peer to bring in like oh it's okay to actually have a peer sitting at the table <laughs> um, and after a couple of years of being there doing uh, actually I used to write and help write his newsletter to hundreds of thousands of people actually uh, and uh, peers I got peers to put art in there and articles and we had, I, I also made, um, what's it called, the small group, uh, like feedback sessions 
and got the county to pay people and so they had 50 people come in one night in small groups and talk about what's going on in mental health of the county uh, focus groups that's it um, and so after doing that for a couple of years the ESA early assessment and support alliance uh, manager uh, Robert Jans came to me secretly quietly one day and said yeah can you have a meeting 10 o'clock on Thursday I was like we'll meet you in that back room back there Okay. Uh, sure, Robert. Uh, yeah, nice to meet you. And yes, I love working with young people. So we actually sat down and I'm sitting there. Okay, what, 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 what does Robert want? What's going on here? And he says, I want to have peer support for ESA. <laughs> and at that time, having mental health peer support worker was not accepted. I was not paid. I couldn't get paid. I actually, after six years, I, I went to them and said, hey, can, can you like pay me for this work I'm doing here? They refused. So anyway, Robert came to me secretly and, like this and said, I want to start, so let's work on it. So we actually took three years having a secret committee with his staff and we got some other um, black people from the community come in. So we you know, had diverse committee um, and we made the first position in Multnomah County in, in peer support in, in mental health. And I said, look, the salary has to be good. So no, no less than the first year, first counselor level one. So we got the salary council level one. And um, it was through like those allies that we started it. Unfortunately, the first person they hired got fired. Um, and the first three peers who really worked from the heart of mental health those kinds of principles in mental health and not addiction principles, which are good, just different principles in peer support, got fired in Multnomah County. Because if you actually, at the time, I don't know how it is now, because we don't have people working from those principles, but if we did, I hope they wouldn't get fired like the first three did. So, but anyway, like success, like, there's, like I got actually help bake that, but that was Robert's idea. I helped support him in that. Yeah, and I now they like have peers all, all over the state, right? They have them all. Every single ESA has a peer now. Eh, not yeah, quite. A big deal. <laughs> well, At maybe not quite. Heard, but they, uh, ESA, yeah. there's there are more peer positions, but not in every county. Okay. But I think that eventually that's the goal. Oh, okay. However, that looks. But I know someone who was in ESA, I can't remember which county, but she was like hounding them like, when are you gonna have a peer support position? I wanna work for you. And she was like hounding them for like months. Yeah. And so yeah, there's still some disconnects, I think. Were you gonna say something, Andrew? Oh yeah. Um... I was wondering if you could expand a bit on with how the, with those people when they got fired and how they got fired. I was curious. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I can legally. And you know, oh, I know how to. Okay. What what I was watching though was different ways of choosing to work with people, um, mm -hmm. and what would be the peer way that let's say IPS or the peer way of working was not accepted. And if there was a problem, the peer got blamed for the problem. Or if they spoke up too much about what should be done in a mental health way, about choices, 
uh, about things like that. But you know, every individual is different, and maybe part of it was the hiring process as well. But uh, Monoma County has a lot. I've always had um, addiction peers, and a, and a whole big department of addiction, but not mental health. So. Well, yeah, and I think sometimes, like, well, a lot of times, like, clinical settings hire on a peer and then don't understand what it is that they're actually hiring for. Like, they don't understand what peer support really is and what they actually want is like someone who is like a poster child for the mental health system and will like help people comply with their treatment <laughs> when in fact that's like the opposite of what peer support is so um yeah i mean this just reminds me of things that are still coming up like in my own work like um i was shadowing someone at one of the programs where i work and another staff member told the peer um well you know you're going to take so and so on this country drive you need to remind them when they come back to um fill their their med box or you know whatever and i was like <laughs> like that I that person should not be asking the peer to do that. And and actually when we started this was never our intention to have that happen. Actually when we started this we never intended to have it be a big uh job. Right. <laughs> we were just doing it to keep alive. And to right. keep, as Andrew said, to keep community. And we actually had big support groups at night and uh, activities together. Uh, so it's interesting to watch it become a job uh, without it being intended to be that way. We yeah. also have to be supported somehow. So it's fascinating to watch that. Um, and I'm glad that you're there, Nabel. I'm glad that people who understand the values are there. And it's growing so quickly now that um, systems do need to be educated. What is peer support? What's going to work? What's going to work for people um, in the working system as well as the non-working system? And, and make sure that I've also seen peers who maybe didn't have all the office skills right. to, to operate in these offices and that caused some of the problems as well. Yeah, I think like I don't know why for some reason I wanted to preface this with unfortunately, but it just is what it is. I think the fact that I have a bachelor's degree and like, you know, I had to write papers and like be all detail oriented and have the margins be like a certain amount in the citations and all that and reading research papers, all of that helped me to have the skill set to be successful in my role as a peer and as a peer leader. Um, a lot of people don't know how to read research um, or how to look things up or... Well, I wanted to add to literacy too, because not everybody has all these like college level skills who are yeah. peers and wouldn't it be a great world that we didn't, wouldn't have to work within these government systems and just do peer support as peer support. Right. And yeah, yeah. that's it, the dream. That, that would be more, yeah, it's something we wouldn't have to put in. We could be who we are and yeah. do what yep. we're supposed to do and not have to explain to anybody. 
but still be held accountable. I think accountability is important yeah. for any job, for yes. any organization. And that's what I think would happen with peer things in Oregon. Some of them fell apart because there wasn't that accountability. Well, and we um, can hold each other accountable. We don't yes. In a nice way. In a, yeah, co-reflection. Yes. I was just going to mention, too, that like I've seen a lot of good peers like be held back because of struggles with technology. And it's like, well, ideally, like they would just be able to do their job and talk to people and not have to worry about technology to write up, you know, whatever was said. It's just like when we started, we didn't have to take notes, put it that way. We just yeah, did our work. No. And then actually, I need to get going because I, I okay. it's it's time for me to go. But maybe I can come back sometime and tell you some more history stories. Yeah. Thank you for letting me do this. That'd be great. I really yeah, appreciate that would be great. it. I mean, if you need to head out, Anne, just feel free to jump off, and we can kind yeah. of like wrap things up. <laughs> yeah. No, uh -huh. I, I I actually I do. I really really appreciate this, and I appreciate being able to tell some of these stories and. Also, to, to watch the, the peer movement has changed me. And even when there's friction with people and friction, maybe they don't work for the same values, whatever, whatever we can do together to work for our own choices, our yeah. own empowerment, as whatever we define it is important. Yeah. So, so thank you for having me. Totally. Thank you for being here. All right. Thanks. Have fun, Anne. <laughs> Bye. Yes, have fun at the beach. <laughs> Um, man, Anne has really good boundaries. That was like almost exactly an hour. <laughs> yeah, she does. Um, she's, yeah, she's good at that. So, yeah, I mean, it's really cool to learn about that stuff, I think. Um, Definitely. I think it's important for us to like, remember where we came from as peers. And, you know, it's also like layered and complex um that there's definitely a lot there there's a lot of experience yeah. and knowledge that it's just you know i'm grateful like we have this podcast to like keep some of this history <laughs> um yeah exactly so it would be so yeah. cool to um also bring on someone I really love actually that Anne was on the front lines of like the first peer who became a professional here in Oregon. Like that's a big deal. Yeah. Like there's, there's a lot more I want to unpack with her around that. Cause I think that's just, there's a lot to explore with that. Um, and I'm curious too about bringing someone on who, um, was part of that original movement too. And like what that was like, like how did yeah. they, first start and like that whole journey of like um I'm sure they had to be very resourceful to like figure things out yeah and, um, I'm very curious too about um addiction peers because I think that's a whole separate thing but I'm curious about having dialogue with that too like the um that side of it yeah, because I don't know as much of the history on the addiction side of things either. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a lot to digest and, like, think about. Um, and also, like, how it applies to, like, 
things that are happening today because I do think um, something I was kind of like reflecting on as Anne was talking is that I feel like a lot of stigma and discrimination these days kind of happens through a lens of like silence or like stonewalling and a lot of what you know Anne went through was very like explicit you know it was explicitly stated in one way or another um people's thoughts or that you know you not being wanted and I think like it's it is different and in some ways like I almost struggle more because like with when somebody is like overtly discriminatory in like statements that they make then you can point to that and be like yeah don't say this shit but if somebody's like being really sneaky about it then it's a lot harder to call that out because people can just make excuses and say that's not the reason why or but gaslight you yeah it's like i guess you know if you call that stuff out enough people are going to learn how to be more um covert about it <laughs> uh mm -hmm. but it yeah, yeah it's, it's hard to like put a, a finger on that and be like this isn't you know, you're, you're not like actually showing acceptance around this. Um, exactly. Or I've had people be like, yeah, peer support's great and blah, 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 blah. And then like their actions, they're not collaborating. So saying one thing, doing another, it's, I think part of that, I'd be curious to hear uh, your feedback on this too. Um, I think that one aspect that plays into that is the worldview clash, because right. the clinical worldview really is so different from like the peer worldview recovery model. It's like clinicians, like when they're going through school, like they're taught that mental, there is mental ill a thing called mental illness that arises from the brain and arises from chemical imbalances. And it is your job to help people cope through those imbalances, learn new skills and to um, um, get them on medication. And um, it's a very, I think, restrictive worldview that is um, mechanical. And then the recovery or peer model, I think it um, it has a lot in common with other worldviews that are, you could say like indigenous worldviews. I had a conversation with um, a peer who's indigenous who says there's a lot of commonalities with the peer values and indigenous values. Um, I think uh, a lot of holistic health practitioners have similar a similar worldview that we have. Like there's a lot of overlap where it's not so much about us being the expert of someone else. It's not about us like um, dictating or thinking in like a mechanical way. It's more about um, like the process and it's more about helping, helping the, um, I could say the inner healing mechanism to do its own thing. And 
Um, the whole idea that acceptance goes a long way. It's it's not um, it's not about fighting ourselves. It's about learning how to accept these parts of ourselves that we reject. Yeah, I. It's like a it, clinician has to, they really have to kind of like, in order to, for us to truly collaborate effectively, we can't just agree to that and say, okay, we're going to work together. Like for that to actually happen involves that we have to actually reevaluate our worldviews because they're yeah. inherently in conflict. And it's and not a clinician believes that. It's not easy to do that. It takes a lot of work. It, for some people, it feels like an actual existential threat. Um, it might tie into so many other things about that person's life, like their social status in society um, and their education, like going into so much debt to get that degree, but having to go to reevaluate everything that they were taught and throw potentially some of those things out. Like that's it's a big deal for some people. Yeah, and I, th I think too that like some of that worldview shifting involves a level of nuance that people have not been taught to or encouraged to explore. Um, I mean, like I've even had like shifts in my own worldview around peer support mm -hmm. where I'm like. You know, maybe some people would call it co-optation, but I think for me, like, it's like, you know, case management doesn't have to be a dirty word. <laughs> like, no yeah. case management for peers, zero. It's like, okay, you know, what I think of as case management, you know, that brings up a certain, certain images or scenarios for me. And I learned that, like, there are some things that peers do commonly that f would fall into case management, but it's not like, it doesn't have to be like in a hierarchical way. Like sure. if I give somebody a list of support groups, it, technically you could say the time that I spent researching online and all of that, that was case management. And then, totally. you, but it's like, I, I think that that's appropriate for a peer to do. Like, I don't think it's inappropriate for yeah. someone to send like resources. Absolutely. So I'm just like, I think there's a lot that we. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, don't have peers taking yeah. people to the social security office, you know, randomly. Oh. <laughs> that's more of like the case management where it's like, uh-huh. We just need this thing done. Please babysit the person. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And which kind of puts us in a subservient role if it's yeah. more like, oh, this is something I don't want to do, so you do it. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's not cool. have time. It's like... Right. So it's like no. there's definitely like that social status hierarchy 
thing at play too that I think makes it difficult for us to collaborate. I think people who have less ego, like it's easier to collaborate with them. Yeah. You know, who don't care about the hierarchy as much. They just want to, they're there for a purpose. They're, they're there. If their number one purpose is I'm here to, to help people, I'm here to, to serve and the rest of it isn't important. I think those are the easiest people to work with. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just like, I want places that are helpful for people <laughs> who mm -hmm. are in those systems and not like causing more damage. And to me, like any kind of ego or like, in fighting about who is supposed to do what is just ultimately a distraction from the healing work that we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah. And we can slip in and out of it too. Like I know there are times where I've slipped in and out of it and um, yeah. we can get distracted from our, our sense of purpose, our calling. Um, so it's like, sometimes it's helpful to have like reminders of that or, um, catch ourselves when we're doing that but yeah i think worldview it's a huge thing um i i don't think we're going to truly be able to collaborate with other types of providers without um us having that kind of dialogue and um i think peers can fall into we can fall into like like you were saying about case management like our own dogma and we can create like our own rigid worldview too. Like, um, I know there's, there's some peers who are, um, on one end of the, uh, blah, 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 one end of the extreme where it's like, um, no psychiatry at all ever, no, like screw clinicians. Like, <laughs> and I think that's too far too, you know, it's like there, there are people who find value in like psychiatry and, and, um, therapy and, just because there are like toxic elements of the mental health system and things that we really need to change like desperately, but it doesn't mean like there's nothing that's working. I mean, we just gotta sift through it, you know? Yeah. Um, I did have a question for you. Like if part of this is shifting worldviews, like, do you think that the emotional labor should be like where should that lie because i just i feel like at least for me like a lot of the emotional labor around like shifting worldviews has lied with peers or you know the one or two people who happen mm -hmm. to be your leadership position at a giant organization at that time um but i don't see as much of that happening on the other end, you know, on other sides. Yeah. I think the reality is that some people are ready to look at their worldviews. And this isn't general, like this isn't even just specific to like peers and clinicians. Like this is like every human being. Like right. um, some, some people are ready and willing to look at their worldview and question it. And some people aren't. And I think it, 
you can't really force someone to do that. Like, you can invite them and then maybe hold some space for them to explore, like, what's the resistance there, what's blocking it. Um, you can do that to an extent, but ultimately, like, you can't really force anyone to. And so I think it's really more about um, opening the space, sending the invitation, and really voicing clear and creating, like, a clear line in the sand of, like, this is what we need to collaborate. Um, it's hard right now with peers, I think, because we're in such a position that we kind of rely on um, we rely on the hierarchy. Yeah. We rely on like the system the way it is. But I think if we were in more of an independent position or had more flexibility, we could draw that line in the sand and be like, we're not going to work with you if you're not willing to have this dialogue with us. We're just not. And um, ultimately, like if I was to stay in the peer field and I'm seriously considering leaving it, if I was to stay in the peer field, that would be my line in the sand. Like, I'm not going to work with you if you're not going to have the openness to question your own worldview. Mm. And I'm going to be willing to question my own, too. It doesn't mean, like, oh, I'm shifting all this onto any one person. We all have to be willing to. Um, and we all have to do the work together. But um, it is each of our own individual responsibility to do that. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I, I agree that that goes for everyone because like if we ask others to do that, we have to be willing to do that ourselves. Yeah. We can't just go enforcing our worldview on others. Like we need to be able to hear different perspectives and come to some kind of understanding. Um, because I'm, I'm not interested in leading some kind of peer dictatorship. <laughs> like, that's not what I want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we can, the thing is, like, we have the, the, the toolkit to, we have a toolkit to, I think, set the space. So, like, we, we know how to explore worldviews with, with people. We do it with the people that we work with. And I think, um, if we can find a way to do it in in an equal ground setting with other types of providers, I think that sets the tone. Like, um, so like I, I was saying before, like we can send the invitation and we can explore, like, um, I think asking the right questions about like, um, I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head. So, I mean, this is, this is a rough sketch, you know, don't take this as the, the full picture, but, um, we could be like, we could elicit their worldview as it is, just help them clarify what is your worldview as you understand it right now. Cause I mean, even just that people don't always consciously think about it. Like they take yeah. in information, they assimilate worldviews over time, like from parents and peers and school but they don't always reflect on it so like even just that one question i think is a good place to start like well um help me understand what is your worldview currently like what does it look like and why do you believe it i think that like already sets things in motion 
and most people I think would be willing to share what their worldview currently is. And then from there, we can ask more exploratory questions of, around that. We can riff off that and be like, um, what does that mean? Could you unpack that more? You know, asking like good questions. And sometimes it even I think that's just enough to help things kind of um, help things unravel that maybe weren't working for them. Um, I mean, I see it just on an individual level with um, just work I've done with people, um, some of it with peer support, some of it with like coaching and hypnosis, um, where sometimes just asking the right question in, in, in the right way starts to help people shift perspective and see it in a, like a new light. Uh, the hard thing is, I think doing that requires like time and space and like mm -hmm. people don't always have that. That's true. The other thing too, is that, um, there already are people out there. There are clinicians, there are um, healthcare professionals out there who I think already share our same values and the worldviews might not be exactly the same, but I think there's a lot of overlap. Like, um, with therapists I've worked with, like sought out, like I've always sought out therapists who I feel like align with my values. And, um, so, um, I, I guess I, I know they're out there. They're definitely out there. And, um, some of them might not be working for, they might not be working in like the mainstream right. mental health sense. They might have like a private practice somewhere where they're just working with like a handful of people, but they're still out there. And um, I've even talked to some clinicians in agency settings who've told me like, oh yeah, I have these views, but I don't feel safe sharing them with my colleagues because I don't want to be yeah. like shamed or like ostracized. So there are people who, um, maybe aren't, they don't feel like they can be fully themselves and share their full worldview because they feel like they don't fit in. Um, so I think even like one of the first steps too could also be like reaching out to the people who already share our values and building bridges with them. Yeah. And I, I agree. Like, I just feel like people shouldn't have to feel like they're going to be ostracized for having like humanistic values. <laughs> like, don't you think it should be yeah. the opposite? <laughs> yeah. Like, if it was the opposite, we would have such a different world. <laughs> I feel, you know, my perspective is like, if you're treating, you know, people in a hierarchical or, like, just totally illness-based way, like, that behavior should be ostracized <laughs> because it's like, how do you think yeah. this is okay? My hope is that, like, 50 years from now, 
that'll be the case. We'll be looking back on today and being like, that was so not cool the way things were. Like, yeah, some um, someone will be interviewing us on their like brain, you know, satellite thing. You know, we won't have podcasts anymore. It'll just like <laughs> broadcast <laughs> thoughts into like people's brain chips. You know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Wherever technology's at in fifty years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The hologram. Transmission. <laughs> Man, yeah. Yeah, I mean I think like that's my hope is like a future where you know these values are not like going against the mainstream. And I mean, I think like there has definitely been shifts, um, you know, like being able to listen to psychiatrists and therapists on YouTube mm -hmm. where I'm like, huh, that's really interesting. And sounds a lot like, like Dr. Values. <laughs> like what's happening. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what i'm talking about yeah dr k right like yeah. he's awesome um the other guy that i shared um, that video with you i forget his name now shoot but he's really cool too oh yeah i can't remember his name off the top of my head but i also listened to psychology in seattle for a while that's um yeah dr fonda and like i was just like a lot of this is pure stuff. And it was interesting, too, because, like, he is, like, totally not aware of the pure movement at all because he had a guest on because he was like, what is this pure support person thing? Like, in, in a question that a viewer had and his, his guest that was on was, like, kind of explaining it. So it was, like, interesting how there's, like, alignment in these values, but he's, like, totally unaware <laughs> that, like, this whole thing yeah. is happening. That's the awesome thing. Like, I, I see in the world right now that there are these different currents going on that are basically saying the same thing, like, maybe in different ways, but, um, and, and they're not all communicating with each other yet, but I yeah. think it's cool that they're popping up. Um, good, like, that gives me hope, too, that there's, um, basically the same core message being said in multiple ways. Yeah, and I think, like, I don't know, stuff like that has helped me to, like, speak clinician language a little bit <laughs> and bridge some of that, those worldviews. <laughs> yeah. So. And the thing, too, is, like, this is, um... There's this guy, Charles Eisenstein. He has some really cool stuff on YouTube. Um, he wrote a few books, like uh, Sacred Economics and um, The Beautiful World Our, Our Hearts Know is Possible. I think that's the title of it. Um, but he talks about like the story of civilization and that we've been living in a story, he calls it the story of separation, where um, things are mechanical. It, there's um, a focus on exploitation and extraction. There's um, focus on 
individualism without care for the collective, um, seeing things, seeing um, the world as things to use rather than being in relationship with them. Mm. And he says, like, this is like the dominant paradigm for most of the Western world. And um, it influences, like, every aspect of our society. Like, we know directly how it influences mental health. Because it, like, the clinical worldview is a direct, like, offshoot of that. But we also see it in education. We see it in politics and government. We see yeah. it in um, broader healthcare. Like, like you yeah. were saying earlier about your conversation with um, your coworker, like it's in the medical sphere too. So um, it like affects every aspect of our society. And um, he talks about a shift in that story, that, that paradigm to one he calls of interbeing, which is more um, being in relationship with and, and power over. And it's um, about valuing everything. It's about, um, not exploiting, but like mutuality, co-creation, um, respecting each other, respecting nature. Yeah, and a lot of that is missing in our yeah. consumer, consumer culture. Yeah, it's hard to like hold the the dichotomy of things, like how we want things to be and what has been built up on and kind of countercultures that are arising as a result of that. And then Yeah, exactly. It's like we're we're and I also love how Anne said earlier that it's movements, not movement. Right. Like she, just talking about peer support, like peer movements. And then there's even a larger context of all of the movements that have been trying to, to shift the culture, trying to shift the paradigm um, that shows up in so many different ways. And um, that does give me a lot of hope that um, it might not be easy. It might not be a straight line, but um, and, and things very well, I think, could get harder before they get better. But um, I do see that lots of different people, I feel, it feels like our hearts want the same thing. And we're just all trying to figure out how to get it, how to, how to get to that point. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know how to wrap this up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> how about this? Um, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, I'll just okay. I'll just stream of consciousness something if you want. Yeah. If, okay. So you're walking through a forest, <laughs> and you see a bunch of trees and flowers and stuff. Um, 
and you go to sniff a flower, <laughs> um, what does the flower smell like? <laughs> oh. I don't know how to describe... Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to describe <laughs> smells, because I... Yeah. I have bad allergies. I don't sniff or make flowers. <laughs> I guess that's my stream of consciousness. I don't know. I think most flowers have like a perfumey smell. I don't have a great sense of smell. Uh, <laughs> what about taste? <laughs> I did try eating a dandelion once and it was terrible. Oh, the flower or the uh, the, stem. the stem. Ooh, it yeah, has that it gooey was... white stuff in it too. Yeah, it was bad because like, okay, when I was in elementary school, I was you know learning about the the plants and like you know plants need sugars to feed themselves, and I I saw it, it was white inside. I was like, oh, I bet that tastes like sugar. No. <laughs> That was my thought process. <laughs> and I was very Dude, disappointed man. and I was like, I'm not going to put any other things in my mouth. <laughs> the roots, um, so the, if you dry and grind up the roots, it tastes a little bit like coffee if you make oh. it into a tea, like dried, dried dandelion root. And it's a great um, detoxifier, great for um, your liver. Well, I did not have the resources or knowledge as a third grader to um, yeah. know how to navigate that. Yeah, yeah, no. Good to know. <laughs> I've been smelling um, lavender a lot. Like lately, there's so much lavender that grows around me. And lately, um, when I'm noticing I'm just like stressed and anxious, but I'm just walking outside and I happen to see some lavender, I've just been grabbing it and like, like rubbing it between my hands and then sniffing it because it's like a good uh, relaxant. Yeah, I think and I look I so like... weird doing that. I'm sure like sniffing <laughs> my hands in public, walking down the street. Well, I'm sure people give me so many weird, weird looks, but stuff all the time. <laughs> I I mean but I, it's, it helps though it really helps just to get that oh well, it's just I, nice I like eucalyptus oil for that um, because eucalyptus oil is often used as like a I guess a homeopathic treatment in my family <laughs> um, it's great for wounds yeah and um. I also think I have a slight allergy to lavender or something because anytime I've tried to use like lavender stuff, my throat feels like puffy. So yeah, it doesn't yeah. have a relaxing effect for me because I'm like, I don't think I'm responding to this correctly. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I haven't like gone into anaphylactic shock or something like that, but it's just like, oh, this isn't. This is not relaxing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not good. Um, anyways, I guess that's it, you know, now hearing our thoughts on flowery yep. smells. 
yeah, I'm just gonna stop recording. <laughs>